welcome back to the Lawali Life podcast. I'm so excited to have you join me for season two of the podcast. If you haven't tuned in already, I'm your host, Alice Law, and this podcast is based purely around stress and loss, and it's a mixture of conversations with incredible people talking about the greatest stresses and losses they've had to overcome and how they came back from that. Stress and loss is a fate we all share to go through stress and to experience losses. And this podcast aims to open up the conversation around two things that a lot of people either avoid dealing with or avoid talking about. So this is what I want to do, shed a light on them, find out about other people's experiences and how they came back from them and give you inspiration so that you feel like you can get through any challenge of yours. Today on the podcast, I'm so excited to bring you Dr. Dennis Harness. Dennis is a expert in astrology, in Vedic astrology particularly, and he has a doctorate in counseling psychology, and he has just been studying Western and Eastern astrological techniques for more than 30 years. He was the founding member of the American Council of Vedic Astrology and served as president of the American College of Vedic Astrology for 10 years. He's written a book on astrology, is writing a new one at the moment called The Karmic Code, and he's just one of the true experts in this field. So it was so wonderful to be able to have him on the show and talk about this. As I think the large problem with people understanding astrology or misunderstanding it is that sadly there is so much fake news essentially around astrology on the internet these days. Anyone can be an astrologer who has an Instagram account and a lot of fake astrology gets spread and then people don't believe it, quite rightly so, because things they've said don't come to pass and don't make sense. But the true experts who are one in a million are the people like Dr. Harness who have been studying this for decades and he was the founder of the annual Vedic Astrology Conference in Arizona where he lives and he really is just a true expert and I really hope you enjoy his teachings and insights in this wonderful conversation. Today I have the wonderful Dr. Dennis Harness joining me from Arizona. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today, Dennis. I've, you're the first astrologer I've ever had on, so I'm super excited to talk to you and get into a lot of different aspects of it. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks for inviting me. Great to see you. You too. So, I mean, first of all, I'd love to know what drew you into astrology. And then before we even go into the sort of type of astrology you do, because it's different to the Western astrology, isn't it? Vedic astrology. So I want to talk about that. But in, to start off, how did you even get into astrology full stop? Well, I always say that it was that lifetime in Tibet that really did it for me. <laughs> <laughs> few thousand years ago, but no, uh, in this lifetime, I was drawn to it, you know, as a, as a kid, when I was 12 years old, I would memorize the, the dates for the sun signs, you know, the 12 signs of the Zodiac. And uh, so I was kind of taken by it, you know, even, even as a young boy. And then a little later, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I started studying it, you know, in terms of Western astrology or tropical astrology, as it's called. And then a little bit later in 1980, which was, God, I can't believe it, it was 40 years ago, 
I was told about a man named Chakrapani Ulal, who was a Vedic astrologer, which is the astrology I work with from India. And I was told about him um, by a particular spiritual teacher of mine named Swami Kriyananda. So I went to see Chakrapani down in Los Angeles in 1980. And, um, it was really a powerful experience. I felt really seen at a deep level by him. And uh, actually, at one point during the session, he said, I know your mind very well, perhaps better than you. <laughs> by the end of this session, I, he had convinced me there was some truth to that. But he also told me I'd be married twice. And this was a little disconcerting because I hadn't even been engaged once. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a little challenging. But sure enough, his prediction did come to pass, and I was married um, early on, and uh, actually in my uh, early 30s, and then I was divorced within a few years. And then I've been with my second wife for 32 years. So, uh, you know, his prediction came to pass. And I could explain it all astrologically why that was so, why he saw that in the chart. But um, uh, just suffice it to say that uh, my Venus, which is the planet of love, is kind of what we call combust the sun. So it was burned up by the sun. So, so to speak, the first marriage went up in smoke, you know. But anyway, it was a very powerful experience with Chakrapani. And I continued studying Western astrology. But uh, to be honest, there weren't a lot of books written um, for Vedic astrologers in the West. Um, there was one book in 1962, which I came across much later, called Constellational Astrology. Because this astrology is based on the sidereal zodiac, so it's more of an astronomer's point of view. So there's about a 23 to 24 degree difference between the two systems when you calculate the charts. You subtract the uh, what's called the ionamsha or degree difference between the charts. But anyway, back to the story. I was studying, and then in 1980 when I met him, I started studying a little bit of Vedic astrology, but to be honest, didn't really get into it until more like 86, 1987, there was a book that came out called Ancient Hindu Astrology for the Modern Western Astrologer. And it was written by a man named James Braha. And it's a very good book for people that have studied Western astrology but want to take on the Vedic system. It's one of the books that I highly recommend as kind of a bridge between the two systems. And then a couple of years later, I started seeing clients in 88, in the fall of 88, um, so that was, yeah, 32 years ago. And um, so here I am today. But uh, it's been a good long journey. And uh, I've put on conferences, international conferences on Vedic astrology since, wow, 1992. Yeah, I've been putting them on for 28 years. So that, and along with just seeing private clients, has been, you know, some of my main work. I've done some writings as well. But so, I don't know if that's so a question, but. No, it's, it's incredible. I mean, talking about Vedic astrology, okay, when you talk about that, so Vedic and Western, what's the fundamental difference apart from obviously you said it's slightly off, it's even its own chart, you said, but what's the sort of principal difference behind it? Well, you know, it's based on the Vedas. So it's based on the Hindu uh, concept of that the main focus of Vedic astrology is to help us to move towards moksha more towards spiritual liberation, that that's its main emphasis. Although it can be very practical in its uses as well. And it tends to focus on uh, areas such as, besides spiritual evolution, spiritual, uh, we could say, um, you know, growth. It, the other areas are 
just like in Western astrology, our relationships, career, and health, physical and mental well-being. So those are the four cornerstones that most people ask about. And like I said, there's this difference between the two systems. So sometimes a planet that will be really challenged in your Western chart may show up really strong in your Vedic chart or vice versa. So I use the analogy for me that Western astrology is kind of like the waves on the ocean. And the Vedic system for me is the undercurrents or riptides or the tsunamis that are going on. So they're both reflecting the ocean, but from different vantage point, different points of view. Maybe another fair analogy would be to use, because uh, I do love Western astrology, is like I'm looking at a mountain from different angles. Mm-hmm. Or the blind men and the elephant, where they're feeling the elephant, and they think the trunk is the elephant, and the other one think, you know, the tusk is the elephant. <laughs> and, you know, we're all kind of blind in a way. And, you know, the idea with Vedic astrology, it's called Jyotish, which is the science of light. So the idea is to bring light into darkness, to help us to discern, discriminate, and to move forward in our life. And the goal of good astrology is to help us to take really a more discriminative view of our life. And to, I try to inspire my clients to really honor the strengths that they have, as well as the challenges that may, may need to be healed. So good astrology really to helps us to take discriminative action and leaves the client with a sense of faith and optimism and hope. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've done a reading with you, as you know, and you're the first sort of, well, I wanted to wait to see an astrologer that I was recommended that I knew would be great. So I waited for our mutual friend, Tori, to tell me about you. And I'd never had a reading like that and never done Vedic astrology at all. And it was so, it was really uplifting. It found it like a very empowering kind of, almost like a roadmap in a way to sort of think, okay, well, this is a great portal of energy perhaps happening there. I'm going to you know, look forward to that. And uh, it definitely, definitely is. So when you're looking at uh, a chart for someone, what are the most influential sort of aspects for people in a chart? What affects them most? Well, you know, in Vedic astrology, it's interesting that there's a strong emphasis on the moon in the chart. Um, because it's a very lunar-based system. Uh, Some of the predictive aspects are based on the position of the moon at birth, actually, uh, which are called the dashas, or planetary cycles of one's life. And these are like developmental life cycles where a planet can have an effect for a number of years. And according to the Vedic system, to fulfill all the nine planetary periods, you would have to live 120 years. But according to other animal species, we should live about that long, but we don't quite make it due to environmental stresses and poor diet, nutrition, and other other factors in our lives. We don't quite make it to 120, but that's the idea, is that um, if you lived a fairly unaberrated lifetime, you would, would make it to that. So the goal, of uh, again, is to just to really to help empower people. I think that's the main thing. I look at my work as kind of like a spiritual life coach. So we also, besides the moon and the dasha, these planetary cycles, we look strongly at what's called the rising sign or the ascendant. In Western astrology, it's called the the rising sign or ascendant. In Vedic astrology, it's called the lagna. And that's the root or the pillar in which the chart is, is basically grounded. It's the foundation of the chart. And that can be different than the sun sign. So the rising sign changes every two hours. 
And so it's the most sensitive thing in the chart. And then the moon changes every couple of days, whereas the sun sign changes every, you know, 29, 30 days on average. So, you know, the moon and the rising sign are much more personal and much more specific to the chart than even the sun sign. So there's not as much emphasis in Vedic astrology on the sun sign, even though it is, these are kind of, I call them the holy trinity. These are the three things we look at, the rising sign, the sun, and the moon, primarily to start off with. It's called the rising sign ruler, the planet that rules the rising sign, wherever it's placed in the chart, that will be, we could consider those the four cornerstones of the chart. Uh, so really, when you think about it, it's so funny because we're all taught from a very young age, from a very simple, simple aspect of astrology, like, oh, you're a Pisces or you're an Aquarius. So this means this. And it's obviously such a basic version because like you're saying, that's essentially 30 days that changes, but you have something, two other things that are moving the entire time that have a lot greater effect on you. Yeah, I think on a personality level, the, the rising sign and the ascendant are are in Vedic astrology are more important than even the sun sign, uh, as we mentioned. And, you know, if you think of the sun sign, it kind of divides people up into 12 different uh, types. And of course, astrology is based on like in Western astrology, Vedic astrology is based on the exact of course date, but exact time of birth and the location of birth. So all three of those factors need to be taken into account to actually cast a horoscope. Um, yeah, so, okay, timing, this is such a great point. Okay, so the time of birth and where you were born, that obviously has a huge, that defines your whole chart, essentially, doesn't it? So do you believe that essentially our sort of fate is written in the stars, as it were? Uh, you know, I believe that there are, I like to say that that's one of the paradoxes we all need to struggle with, particularly as astrologers, but also for any of us, is that... Um, the interplay of fate and destiny and free will. And the idea is, according to karmic theory, um, we have what's called samchitta karma, which is our accumulated karma from all of our past lives. Because Vedic astrology is based on the theory of reincarnation, that we've had many, many lifetimes here on this planet and other solar systems as well. And so the idea is that uh, the samchitta karma is the accumulated energies of or accumulated karmas of past lives. And then what's called Prabhda karma is the karma that we came on, came to work on in this lifetime. Because if we remembered all of our past lives, we would be so devastated, we wouldn't be able to get out of bed on a Monday morning. You know? So um, the Prabhda karma is the chart is reflecting that, what we're, we came here to work on, what lessons we came here to learn, or as Yogananda, the great saint, what songs our soul came here to sing. And um, it's one of the important things of the Vedic system is to help tap people into the songs or songs that they, yeah, that they came here to sing their, their Dharma, so to speak, as it would be spoken of in India, their Dharma or right livelihood, right activity. But then on the free will side of the equation is what's called Kriyamana karma, which is the karma of our actions, what actions we take in this lifetime, our behavior, our actions our choices we make. And then finally, Agama karma is the, how we envision the future, how we you know, think about the future. Because, you know, as who is it? Buddha, I think said, as we think we create our world. And I would like to say we, as we think we at least affect our world. 
But there is this interplay of fate, destiny, and free will uh, that's coming into play. Uh, and that's something that it's almost like a paradox. You know, it's like there should just be one way or another, but the reality is there's this interplay between the energies. But I do believe strongly that one's own will combined with the grace of God and goddess can be stronger than any astrological influence. But there are certain influences in the chart that are called dreed or fixed karmas that are very, very hard to circumvent. They will usually come like, for example, someone may have really difficult marital karma. And um, like, like I do in my chart in terms of particularly a first marriage would be difficult for me. Um, so, you know, you see that in a chart. And then I call it the three rings of marriage, the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and then the suffering. <laughs> so, you know, if somebody has a really difficult chart for marriage, as one of my teachers, many would say, it may be better to have a spiritual marriage, uh, not to do a legal binding contract. So sometimes that's way, one way to kind of circumvent the pothole in the road or to just wait until one's more mature, maybe wait until your Saturn return, which is around the age of 29, because then you'll be more clear about what it is you want in relationship or marriage, but also what it is that you don't want. So um, there are these fixed karmas that are there. Um, and so uh, that being said, there are also unfixed karmas that can be changed or can be mitigated uh, through one's own will and the grace of the divine. So when you say, okay, fixed karma, do you, is there sort of like, could you see fixed marriages in someone's chart, for example? Uh, yeah, sometimes you can see that there'll be, you know, for example, two or three marriages in a chart. You can see this in a chart. Um, it's kind of tricky because sometimes what do you qualify as a marriage? Uh, like I was just doing a chart for a person earlier uh, this morning, and it really looked difficult for a first marriage. And the person was actually in their first marriage, but they didn't marry until the age of 35. So, uh, and they had had a significant relationship earlier in their life, but they, they never got married. So again, I would say, you know, if the person's had a really significant relationship, that that may count, you know, uh, as the uh, difficult marital karma. And sometimes, you know, just as we mature, we, we you know, we can make more healthy choices in our life and we can work more with a relationship to, you know, bring out the positive qualities of it rather than just feeling defeated by the challenges. Yeah, absolutely. So when you see stuff like this in someone's chart, for example, if you saw sort of five terrible marriages, like how do you, how do you go about, how do you go about that when you're giving a sort of reading? Uh, you know, again, I would just emphasize that the person should, the mantra should be go slow, not to get into, uh, not to get too much into a hurry around marriage. Again, maybe perhaps have more of a spiritual marriage, you know, maybe really, you know, live with the person first, really get to know them, make sure that it's really solid. But again, maybe even for them to, um, to not actually have a legal binding contract. Um, but again, also, you know, if they're already married, you know, just to, again, common sense is allowed emphasize the importance of marital therapy and to work things through, uh, you know, as best they can. Cause I'm always an advocate for people to, to try to stay together and sort it out. Mm. 
So what's it called when um, you look at charts together to see if people are compatible? Because I love to talk about that. Yeah, it's called relationship compatibility, or in Western astrology, they call it synastry. And it's basically looking at the charts and comparing. Um, I look at one of the things I look at strongly between the charts are what are called conjunctions, where certain planets are conjoined or close to the same degree as other planets in the other person's chart. Because if there's a lot of conjunctions, that indicates that there's work to do together, uh, that there is this karma to work out together with each other. And sometimes these can be really positive karmas, and sometimes they can be really challenging karmas. In Vedic astrology, we emphasize a lot the moon compatibility between the charts. So we would compare one person's moon to the other person's moon because the moon, as I mentioned, is so important in Vedic astrology. And it's also our emotional connection with our partner and our ability to create a home together. So there's a whole um, point system that's used in India for compatibility where you can get anywhere from four points up to 35 points for compatibility. Um, and it looks at a number of different factors based on the moon positions at birth for both charts. But that's just, that technique is only one out of many things to look at. So it's maybe one cornerstone that I look at. I also look a lot at the Mercury compatibility between the charts because that indicates the ability to communicate with each other and to work, sort things through. So, and um, we also look for Venus contacts between the charts and Mars contacts in terms of passion, romance, that kind of aspect. But I'm always uh, say that there's four foundational, um, uh, four cornerstones in any healthy relationship, which are the spiritual affinity, which Vedic astrology emphasizes a lot, the spiritual connection, the intellectual connection with your partner, um, the sexual or romantic connection, and then also the friendship. Uh, that, that that's not there. If the friendship isn't there, that that's a really important cornerstone that's actually foundational as far as I'm concerned in any healthy relationship, that there needs to be that divine friendship. Yeah, I think those are such four amazing, amazing pillars and points and something that, like you say, is so crucial to to a good relationship surviving in so many different ways. I mean, especially the spiritual connection, I think that's such a nice thing to put in because I do believe that you have these connections with people far greater than others spiritually and you just feel it straight away and it's an incredible, almost energetic hit, (laughs) if you will. I call these uh, cosmic partners. And sometimes these cosmic partners, you know, are not necessarily people that we're to get married to. They are people that come into our lives and they enliven us and could be same-sex relationships, of course, as well as even connections with children or the elderly. Uh, They can just be these cosmic partners that just really, you know, light up our chakras, so to speak, and that we know them from a deep level that we've spent many, many, many lifetimes with them, many incarnations with them, and that they've come and they feel like a warm slipper sometimes. You know, there's just that sweetness to the relationship you know that's there oh, I, lo- I love that analogy like a warm slipper that's so nice <laughs> so nice talking about past lives actually with this so what is your sort of understanding of past lives because I think I believe in past lives massively and I'd love to talk about it a bit more because 
it's very new to some people and the concept in general, but what's the sort of philosophy behind it in Vedic astrology and your own personal philosophy? Well, again, that the chart is reflecting, um, like we said, our past life karma, the whole chart is reflecting that to an extent. Um, and particularly the chart, as I mentioned, is reflecting the Pravda karma, the karma that we came to work with. I believe that we've had, you know, thousands of lifetimes. When people come to me and they say, you know, this is my fifth lifetime, you know, well, we've incarnated from rocks, you know, we've <laughs> incarnated from animate objects. We've moved through, you know, the evolution of our soul from inanimate objects to uh, plants, to animals, to humans. Uh, although I find sometimes animals are much more evolved than humans, for sure. <laughs> so not to, put, not to put the animals lower on the totem pole. But again, there is these incarnations we've had, you know, many, many, many lifetimes, you know. I mean, there are the concept of older souls, you know, for sure, and younger souls. But some people... And, you know, can spend 100 lifetimes and they don't grow spiritually where someone else may, you know, evolve strongly within 10 lifetimes. You know, it's it's all relative to how much will and effort we put into it. So it's effort and grace, you know, that comes into play. But I believe that, um, you know, there's really good psychics and intuitive people that read what's called the Akashic Record which are the record of past lives. And in India, they, there's a technique called the uh, Brigu, Book of Brigu, which are these ancient palm leaves that have like thousands of charts in them. And the person, the astrologer, will look at your palm and take a, sometimes they'll take a handprint or a thumbprint, and then they'll look for the chart that matches your handprint or thumbprint. And then they'll start to read to you about your past lives, present life, and even sometimes future lives. Wow. You know? So it's called the Book of Brighu. Uh, I think it's B-R-I-G-H-U, Brighu. You know? And I've had a few of those readings, and they were really powerful, really interesting. And they talk a lot about in the Book of Brighu, the strong lifetime that's having the strongest effect on this lifetime. You know, the strongest lifetimes that are having a strong impact on this lifetime. So it's, you know, to me, it's all really fascinating. And, you know, I just, you know, had a lot of experiences traveling around the world where I'll go places and they just feel so much at home. You know, it's kind of like a deja vu feeling, you know, when you go there and uh, as well as people, of course. And um, so I think that that. Those are some of the things that I think about with reincarnation. I also, um, um, I think it's something that, again, sometimes we can get too hung up in our past lives too. And we forget that this present incarnation is the one we need to focus on. So sometimes, you know, uh, you know, you don't meet very many people that were a, a street sweeper, a street cleaner, you know, in their past life. Everybody was a queen or a king. Or, <laughs> <laughs> Some regal royal person, you know. So and, true. Uh, you know, some of those some of those lives as garbage collectors were some of my nicer lives. Actually, they were less encumbered and much easier to work with than some of these 
but really, quote, sophisticated lifetimes where they're full of drama and tra- trauma and all kinds of things. That's, uh, I love that. That's so funny. When you talk about so the Akashic Records, okay, so what is the concept there in terms of, for people listening, what, what does an Akashic reading sort of entail? Well, again, that the psychic or intuitive or someone that works with the Akashic Records will tap in to these previous lifetimes. And particularly, they'll usually tap into the ones that are, seem to be most important for this incarnation in terms of lessons that maybe weren't learned in past lives that are needing to be addressed in this lifetime. So, um, you know, somebody say that was poor, they wanted to incarnate this lifetime and be fairly well off because they really experienced the pain of poverty. And then this lifetime, they experience riches and then they understand the pain is sometimes of being also wealthy, that it's not all a cup of tea. And, you know, there's challenges with that into the spectrum as well. Although I think it's much easier to meditate on a balanced checkbook or an abundant one, you know, it's not a, not to uh, glorify poverty because it's a, you know, terrible thing to have to go through for most of us, you know, when we've gone through those periods in life uh, with that. But anyway, that's, um, that's some of the things that I think about when I think of the Akashic record. It's, uh, again, a real powerful tool. If, if it helps you in this lifetime to maybe learn the lessons or to realize why you're traumatized about certain things, you know, you know, why you're traumatized. Um, yeah, is so, that, like, things like that. So say when someone has a, like a completely un, unknown fear of say heights in this lifetime, nothing's ever happened that maybe made them scared of like a height and that might be from a past life. Correct. Correct. Like I, I, you know, I've been experiencing this as I get older, you know, I'm mid mid sixties now and I've experienced a little bit more vertigo speaking of, you know, heights, fear of heights. And I just really had to tap into that. But one time when I was in um, Hawaii in the Island of Kauai, there's these uh, cliffs that, that on either side are like thousands of feet down, you know, and there's like this cliff that you're on, either side, you know, where you just feel like a wind could gust could come and just blow you off. And there you go. And I remember experiencing this real fear of heights, (laughs) which was, which was, uh, you know, due to common sense too. But I was told, um, and I had a vision of it in a past life that I had lived on the Island of Kauai and I was one of the adventure shamans. And there were like warrior shamans that came in and overtook the island and they took some of us and actually threw us off those cliffs. And so I had this memory of a past life of being tossed like that. So actually what you're saying is we've probably all had lifetimes like that, but you know, where we've had these tragic deaths. And so sometimes those memories can come up in this lifetime and play a role in our fears or phobias. That's so incredible, isn't it? When you say memory, is it the memory within our soul or is it our mind or our DNA? What what part of memory do you think it is? I think both. I think it's, you know, it's our soul level memory because we, from a soul level, we remember everything. But then from our memory in this lifetime, we may be getting a glimmer of it. Because like I said, if we remembered all our past lives, we would be just devastated. It'd be too much energy to take in. And so 
Yogananda, the great saint, he said that it's good that we have what he called divine amnesia, <laughs> that we couldn't, you know, we could only remember some things from past lives. But he felt strongly that we can sometimes use those as excuses, too, for this lifetime, that it's important to focus on the here and now, uh, to really focus on that. Because sometimes the past life uh, uh, can be a distraction. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. It's so interesting. So, okay, thinking about karma then, because, I mean, I know you're writing a book on karma, aren't you? Your new book. It's <laughs> The Karmic Code. So karma I find so interesting. And I think the sort of normal understanding of karma in the Western world anyway is, you know, what you give out, you get back sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So how so how does our everyday karma affect people and ourselves? And how does the sort of longer term karma affect us? Like the ones you're talking about that come into this life, how can we change that if we want to? Or can we even? Well, I think one way to change Karma is through, as Sri Yukteswar, Yogananda's guru, who was a Vedic astrologer, said, the first act on the spiritual path is to learn to behave, <laughs> you know, just to behave. <laughs> Good behavior is, is essential. But, um, you know, I think, too, that um, uh, our karma is also strongly connected with, um, with gratitude, that if we can... Uh, I just heard, uh, you know, the, I don't know if you ever heard of the spiritual teacher named Muji, um, but he's a spiritual teacher out of Portugal, lives in Portugal. He has an ashram there. But he was asked recently about what is the most important mantra, you know, for this, this woman asked, what was the, what was her mantra? He asked, she asked if he would give her a mantra. And he said, do you realize you want to know the most important mantra of all? And, you know, the woman was just like, yes, yes, I want to know it. And all the audience was, yes, we want to know the most important mantra. Because mantras are one way to help change the karma a bit, you know. And he said the most important mantra is thank you. It's just to say thank you. <laughs> thank you a lot, you know, in life. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Go around and be in gratitude with whatever's given to you in life. And this is one of the great things to do is to is to have gratitude towards even the challenging things that are given to you in life. This can be a good remedial measure. In Vedic astrology, we you say that meditation and yoga also are great remedial measures to help uh, to help mitigate some of the challenging karmas. Uh, and also, there's other upayas or remedial measures that are used in Vedic astrology. One of them is um, an upaya is a fire ceremony or yagya or puja that a Hindu priest does for you. And it helps to literally burn up the karma like a homa. There's a fire going and the, the priest is feeding the fire, you know, with ghee and with other kinds of, uh, uh, you know, materials to uh, that literally take the smoke of your negative karma and take it up to the heavens. And so my feeling about those techniques of, of remedial measures, it's really great if the person can be present during the ceremony and actually help maybe help to feed the fire as well to do it uh, as well, then that can be a very powerful upaya or remedial measure. Also in Vedic astrology, we use, use gemstones to help strengthen the planetary energies and to help, um, 
um, we could say mitigate some of the karma uh, through gemstones. I think one of the greatest remedial measures is to do charitable work, mm. to do work that's humanitarian, charitable work, or to even give to charities, things like that, to uh, give financially. And it's even better, I think, if you can give, um, you know, through your actions, actually be involved with some charitable activities. I think it's a very powerful uh, remedial measure. But even the use of certain herbs can help strengthen the planetary energies. Um, certain aromatherapies can be used. Uh, color therapy. Sometimes, you know, for example, blue may be a really healing color for some people connected with their chart, but for other people, uh, maybe the color green or the color, you know, red is more healing for them. So one of the things we can do when we look at charts is um, use of color therapy and gemstones because uh, the gemstones are associated with each of the planets. There are certain gemstones associated with strengthening each planetary energy. Yeah, so we want to strengthen planetary energies that maybe are a little bit weak in the chart. And so there's a variety of different ways that you can go through it. And mantra is, again, one of the best ways to, to work with uh, strengthening the planetary energies. And so there's particular mantras for each of the planets. And each of the planets have deities associated with them. So you can also uh, strengthen a planet by um, connecting up with the deity associated with it. For example, the sun is connected with Shiva. Uh, so doing propitiation to Shiva can help strengthen the sun. Or even in yoga, doing salutation to the sun. You know, the Surya Namaskar can be good for strengthening the sun if the sun is somewhat challenged in the chart. Um, so each of the planets have different deities, different mantras, different gemstones, uh, you know, different behavioral things that one can do to help strengthen that energy. I don't have to remember what you told me was my gemstone because I need to go back and listen, listen, and find yeah. out what it is and start wearing it. Because I yeah. haven't been. Yeah, it's, it's just one way to work with uh, strengthening the, the planetary energies. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah, I think for you, well, one possible gemstone, um, I'd have to look a little bit more carefully. I do have your chart in front of me, but um, I think it, one of them is, is pearl or moonstone. That was the, it, yes. Strengthening for you, you know. Or do you actually Chandra Namaskar, which is salutation to the moon, which is a, 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 a yoga sequence that's connected with, you know, and even going out at night and taking moon baths and just bathing in the moon's energy, allowing that divine nectar to come down from the moon to uh, uh, enliven you. I do love the moon. I mean, speaking of the moon, okay, we right now are in the middle of, as you said, a double eclipse and mm -hmm. it's quite a crazy energy going on. I've been feeling, I'd love for you to just explain a bit about what this sort of end of year eclipse means for people or for the planet well, for us. We anyway. just went through the lunar eclipse, you know, on the 30th, just a couple of days ago. And in Vedic astrology, it was in the sign of Taurus, a lunar eclipse means a full moon eclipse. So the moon is, 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 is a full moon. Um, and those can be tricky emotionally. Sometimes they can create an emotional roller coaster ride a little bit. So if any of you felt that sense of being ungrounded or being a little bit um, uh, flighty emotionally or mentally, it may have been reflected through the eclipse energies. 
the eclipses, according to Vedic astrology, would be good times to be meditating or be more inward. Uh, but we have more challenging eclipse coming up on December the 14th, the solar eclipse. And that one is a little concerning for me because the solar eclipse is occurring at the very last degree of Scorpio. Um, so if in Vedic astrology, if you have any planets there, it can be, you know, much more challenging. Um, wherever it falls in your chart, there can be some difficulties in that particular area. So um, it's a good day to lay low, as I always like to say to my clients, under a solar eclipse, no bungee jumping, hang gliding, rock climbing, you know, <laughs> just take it easy. Don't push fate. Don't, don't, yeah, don't go, <laughs> don't go out on those cliffs, you know, <laughs> maybe stay away from those, which I will do. My wife tries to talk me into going to the Grand Canyon. I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Monday, oh. isn't it? The 14th, I think. So. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Everyone stay indoors. <laughs> and it's interesting because that's the day in the United States that the Electoral College gives its vote for the president, the next president. Really? And, that, and that's the day supposedly Donald Trump is going to give up, you know, fighting uh, to an extent when, this, when the Electoral College comes in with their vote. And it's interesting that solar eclipse occurs right on Donald Trump's moon. So it could indicate the ending of him, you know, the ending of the, the cycle for him, which it most likely will. But it's so interesting that that would fall exactly on the degree of his moon in Scorpio. So wow. it needs his time to, uh, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> give it up. <laughs> he just keeps trying to invalidate the election, you know, which is crazy. Uh, but, but we have a crazy president. So what can I say? <laughs> but thinking about those kind of things. Okay, so that's like an event that's going to happen that, kind of well will affect the planet you know what president you know happens and can you see these sorts of things so like in astrology this year has obviously been such a crazy year for everyone was something like this written in the stars in that way yeah there was um and this is actually to give western astrology a big big shout out here um there was a, a conjunction of pluto and saturn in january of this year and that only occurs once every 36 years. So it's not like it happens every day. And the last time that occurred in 84 was during the AIDS epidemic, you know, which is still, we're still struggling with that to an extent. Of course, it was terrible during that, those times um, in the um, mid 80s. So this eclipse occur again occurred. And of course, we've had the pandemic. But the other factor that played into it was there was the nodes of the moon, they're called Rahu and Ketu. And they were in the same exact positions that they were during 9-11 in 2001, September 11, 2001, the same exact positions. So that was going on too. So we had that happening uh, as well. So, you know, it looked like a dicey year from whether Western astrology or Vedic astrology, you know, was coming. And, uh, you know, so, it's not as we've all experienced. I, I don't predict doom and gloom kinds of things. So that's just not my, my, my nature. My nature is working more with people, individuals or couples, or, or um, I work with also astro cartography, which is taking your chart and putting it on a map of the world. So it is kind of, uh, 
like looking at ley lines of areas that may be more positive, areas that may be more difficult. But I think, you know, we, you know, as we've all experienced, we've, you know, all been shook into, shaken to the core. But I think one thing great about this year is it's been a really good year for spiritual growth because it's forced us to go within, you know, um, and not, not to focus so much just on external reality, but focus on the inner planes as well as the outer planes. Yeah, it's so true. I think so many people are sort of having some realizations, if not spiritual ones, but just, you know, moments for themselves thinking, oh, this is actually more in a line with my life. This is maybe how I want to live my life. Maybe I don't want to be around that person anymore. Just having a few sort of, yeah, realizations, which are definitely, as far as I'm concerned, spiritual ones, but, you know, not everyone would say that, but it's, it is like you say, it's, it's definitely been a time for complete inward reflection in a really good way. I think so. I think that's been the, I think that's been the, <clears throat> the beauty in the breakdown is, uh, is that uh, more of that inner focus and slowing down, you know, slowing down. Yeah. So when you talk about as well, well, predictions in the charts in terms of what you can see, has there ever been something when you've then become such a great astrologer, looked at your own chart and thought, Oh no, this is coming up. How do I, how do I then change that for myself? Uh, I mean, it's difficult because sometimes these fixed karmas are very challenging. I had, um, in back in 2007, in October of 2007, I had Saturn transiting over my ascendant degree to the minute, um, which only occurs once every 29 years. And I went through, you know, I won't go into all the details, but I went through a breakdown. I was just doing way, way too much. I was spinning 10 plates at once and they all came crashing down. And I had to just really go through a real dark night, as I call it, the dark night of the ego, because I don't know if the soul actually has a dark night. I think the ego is the thing. So my ego just got kind of crushed, you know, and dismantled for a while. And it was very intense, uh, especially for my wife, you know, to have to deal with, you know, with her husband going through kind of a breakdown. So it was, it was very strong and I saw it coming, but even there, you know, it's like, Sometimes astrologers, we don't listen to our own advice. <laughs> and it kind of, it, it definitely, I mean, I could see where I was getting really tired and fatigued and everything, but, you know, I didn't see it. I didn't see it fully manifesting as it did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so, so amazing, isn't it? That you can see these things coming and then, yeah, well. As you say, either. But well, do you think you could have done something about that if you if you well, really tried you know, or not? What I was doing too is I was doing a lot of Kundalini yoga, where I was doing um, holding postures, you know, for like twenty minutes, and then doing breath of fire, you know. So I was really pushing the Kundalini energy, and I think what happened was was I had kind of a a Kundalini crisis where there was so much energy that was going through me and I wasn't able to contain it, to hold it. So it kind of blew out my chakras, so to speak, uh, particularly wow. the heart chakra, and which can be vata deranging, which can affect the mind and the emotions, the heart chakra very strongly. So I think I just had this kundalini awakening there that was just too much for me to hold. So maybe if I would have been doing, wouldn't have been pushing the river so hard, you know, 
as one of my teachers from India said, you were poking a snake with a stick, you know, <laughs> by doing so much Kundalini energy work that maybe it wouldn't have been as dramatic as it was. But I have a lot of Leo planets in my charts, so sometimes I can be a drama king. You know? <laughs> so maybe I just needed to go through that drama. But it, there was beautiful things that happened during the breakdown, too. It was... Uh, it was a wonderful experience on certain spiritual levels. It was just, you know, I didn't have a shaman's hut to go to, you know, <laughs> to just have somebody take care of me and feed me. I was running a huge organization of 500 members, and I had three staff, full-time staff, and I had a wife and children. So it was a lot to try to take all that on and still needing time out for myself. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow, it's just so interesting. You also mentioned Saturn before then, that that was something that, and I'd love to just ask you about Saturn return because I think, again, this is a concept that's thrown around a lot in the West yeah. in different ways and what it actually means. So what does Saturn return really mean for people and how many times does it happen in your lifetime? Does yeah. it happen more than once? Yeah, Alice, it happens on average around every 29 years. So people usually go through their Saturn return between the ages of 28 and 30. On average, it's like 29 and a quarter years. But again, depending on where your Saturn's placed, it may be earlier, earlier or later than 29. But um, yeah, you just went through yours, actually. You just completed it. Uh, yeah. Yes, graduation. <laughs> and so the first Saturn return is around the age of 29. And then the second one happens around the age of 58 to 59. Um, and then the third one around the age of 87, 88, something like that. So, um, so sometimes some people experience three Saturn returns wow. uh, during the course of their life. And sometimes um, some people, you know, uh, during the first Saturn return, it's kind of a time of growing up kind of growing up into coming into your adult life more fully. And sometimes it can be painful, Saturn returns. Saturn is the most important planet for spiritual growth too. So it can be very spiritual. Just from the ego point of view, sometimes it can be painful. But the second Saturn return is kind of, I'll use the analogy, it's kind of like you've climbed a mountain and you've reached a certain plateau in your life and you're like looking over your shoulder, assessing what you've accomplished in this lifetime and then getting ready to move through a gate into a whole new chapter of your life and dropping any excess baggage that you don't want to carry into this new phase. So sometimes Saturn returns can be a time of completion, introspection, and letting go of the past. So, and sometimes the third Saturn return can indicate the, you know, the death, the loss. I don't predict death. Um, because that's in God and goddesses hands. But, uh, sometimes you'll see, Sometimes, even during the age of 59, some people just decide to take off the old tight shoe, you know, and leave, leave the body at that time. So Saturn returns can be, uh, can be a little bit more vulnerable in terms of health sometimes, but usually that's more during the second or third Saturn return. Yeah. So it's a, if it's a period of how many years, did you say? The Saturn return? Yeah. It happens on and off. It depends on your chart, but... It happens sometimes on and off for a year, you know, because Saturn will go over your Saturn and then it'll retrograde back over the Saturn and then come back over again. So sometimes people go through three crosses of Saturn over the Saturn, you know, 
some people, it only happens once, you know, and then that's it. So, you know, it just depends on the degree of your Saturn and how Saturn's moving because it goes forward and retrogrades. And so it, there's that difference for, you know, each chart. Okay, I'll be a guinea pig for people then in this situation, people listening, because I know quite a lot of our listeners are probably in their Saturn return time now. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, Saturn, uh, one of the lessons with Saturn, I think, is humility. It's really being a humble and being of service to others. Uh, seva is real important. Or doing, you know, charitable work can be a great way to uh, propitiate Saturn. But I would say humility, slowing down, working hard, but not working so hard that, you know, the nose is to the grindstone where, you know, you burn yourself out. Because when Saturn goes over the ascendant, which is what I had happen in 2007, that can be, in a way, a kind of a form of a Saturn return. Mm. Because Saturn's returning to this position that's the most sensitive in the chart, which is the rising sign, which we mentioned early on in our conversation. And Saturn, when it goes over the moon, also is very sensitive time. It's a very sensitive time. Because mm. uh, you had kind of a double whammy there. You had Saturn going over your moon and Saturn. So you, you know, you know, you know, I would say, you know, 2019, 2020 was, you know, really testing for you. Yeah. But again, it can be great for your spiritual growth. So it can just push you to, to want to find happiness beyond this 3D world. Yeah. That's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, I... Yeah, I lost my dad in my Saturn return. Not that everyone will obviously lose their parents in their Saturn return at all. That's not what I'm saying. But that was obviously one of my challenges that I went through in my Saturn return, which is really interesting. Yeah, because Saturn is father. Could be father. Um, yeah, could be father in the chart. So can't indicate. Or the moon is mother. So sometimes when Saturn goes over the moon... It can indicate, not always, but it sometimes can indicate the loss of the mother or the loss of a loved one. There's three things I don't predict in charts when usually when I'm doing charts. I don't predict death. I don't predict divorce. And I don't predict disease. Because the um, problem with all three of those is you can create a lot of fear and worry with clients. And I don't think that that's really healthy and that's good. Uh, you don't want to sugarcoat things so much either. Um, and cheerlead someone off a cliff, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it's finding that balance and finding ways to word things to where it can still be empowering to the person. Um, you know, just saying, you know, this is maybe going to be a challenging time in your marriage. So maybe good to get some extra help, some marital therapy during this time, because there may be a real test in the marriage, so to speak, and things like that. Yeah. Or, you know, just good to go and get a complete physical, you know, get everything checked out, just make sure that, you know, everything's, um, you know, okay. Without trying to create worry or fear, you know, saying that the person's going to have a heart attack or get cancer or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. It's just, I mean, it's so fascinating to me that this can be seen in, in the planets and in the stars. And it, do you think in terms of how much astrology is used now, do you think that's going to increase the more we sort of go inward and start reflecting, yeah. going back to that kind of thing? I think it's really growing a lot in popularity. You know, it's really growing a lot in popularity. Um, you know, I've seen over the 28 years of putting on the conferences, you know, 
increase in interest. And um, we even had to, this year, we had to have the conference through Zoom because of COVID. We weren't able to have it in person in Sedona here. We normally have the conference every year in Sedona. But this year we had to do it through Zoom. And we still had, I think there were 250 people plus representing 25 countries, you know, that attended, you know. So it was still a great turnout. You know, I, I think astrology is, you know, I think, I can't remember the statistics, but I think over 50% of the population believes that astrology has some relevance, you know. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I just think the horoscope astrology is a little limited, you know, in the paper, you know. <laughs> I think that's what gives it a bad rap, isn't it? It's so yeah. annoying. <laughs> You know, you can say a certain amount through sun sign astrology, so you can, but it, it, it again, limits it to just saying there's 12 types of people in the world, you know, um, so it's limiting. Plus, like I said, in Vedic astrology, we emphasize the moon sign more, you know, uh, so that, um, you know, is, is more, it's hard to, you can't tell your moon sign unless you cast the whole chart, you know. Yeah, it's like a whole picture, isn't it? A whole painting. Yeah, more of a, more of a yeah, exactly. It's a good way to put it. So to finish, what's one, actually two things, what's one book you would recommend to people and starting to read about astrology? You know, there's a simple book that I like that I sometimes recommend to people that are new to Vedic astrology, which is called Vedic Astrology Simply Put. Hmm. Uh, by William Levacy, L-E-V-A-C-Y. And then I mentioned that ancient Hindu astrology for the modern Western astrologer is good for somebody that's studied Western astrology but wants to take on Vedic astrology. There's another book called Light on Life, which is more for intermediate astrologers that I would recommend. And also the book The Astrology of the Seers by Dr. David Frawley. Those are, those are four of the books that I often recommend I've written a book on the nakshatras, which are the 27 divisions of the Hindu zodiac. So it's like dividing the zodiac into 27 segments. Wow. Um, so that's a little bit more, a little bit more. It's an introductory book, but kind of introductory to intermediate level. Yeah. And your new book you're writing, that's... Yeah, I've been working on that for a while. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's about a young man's, uh, kind of goes full circle here. It's about a young man who is trying to understand the nature of fate, destiny, and free will. And uh, just, you know, meeting these remarkable people on the path to try to understand that and how, how his life unfolds based on his chart, too. So, yeah. Amazing. But it's written more for the lay public, you know. Yeah. I look forward to that one. So to finish, what's one mantra or quote that you try to live by that inspires you? Uh, there's a quote by Sri Yukteswar, Yogananda's guru. Um, and he said it very eloquently. He said that a child is born at that moment in time. It's in mathematical harmony with that soul's karma. And that it reflects one's unalterable past and probable future results, underline probable. He said, but the message blazing across the heavens at the moment of birth was not meant to emphasize fate, but was to arouse the will to action or to arouse the soul from slumber. So again, that would be the quote that I would say is probably one of the most important quotes is to realize that we do, 
you know, have free will, even though there are these, these patterns of destiny that are playing out too. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Dennis. It's been so interesting talking to you about all this and people can find you. I'll put your website in the show notes in case anyone is interested in getting a reading and knowing more because I mean, you just are the sort of pinnacle of understanding astrology and it's just been so fascinating talking to you. So thank you. Uh Well, thank you, Alice, for having me on. I really appreciate seeing you and connecting up again. Lovely. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with the incredible Dr. Dennis and had an amazing insight and perspective expansion on the world of astrology and just how deep and interesting and meaningful and varied it can be. If you did enjoy the episode, then please hit subscribe and download so I can continue to bring you more amazing guests like him from around the world. His website details are in the show notes for anyone that wants more information or would like to book their own astrology reading with him. Next week, I have the incredible Marie Diamond from The Secret, the world famous movie and teaching around the law of attraction. So stay tuned and I can't wait to see you then.